Hi, I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host of A Public Affair. We love creating this public space for in-depth conversations about education, ecology, food, and so much more. To keep these conversations going, we need your support. Go to wortfm.org slash donate. Thank you. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from Welcome to a public affair. I'm Douglas Haynes, your Monday host. At the United Nations COP27 climate conference this week, Assad Raymond, spokesperson for the Climate Justice Coalition, told Democracy Now! You can't have the very people burning the planet sitting here and pretending to be drafting the solutions to it. And that's exactly what's happening in these climate negotiations. Raymond's criticism echoes many who are wondering whether the annual COP conference can still lead to meaningful reductions in fossil fuel emissions. Today, we have two guests to help us sort through the latest climate science and developments at COP27 happening now in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. As my guest, Dr. Jillian Gregg, writes with her co-authors in a new article, current policies are taking the planet to around three degrees Celsius warming by 2100, a temperature level that Earth has not experienced over the past three million years. The Paris Agreement, created at COP21 in 2016, aimed to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels, a threshold for runaway catastrophic climate changes. But most scientists agree that this is now impossible without an immediate effort to reduce global emissions by about half by 2030. Behind these numbers lies human suffering disproportionately borne by countries in the global south that didn't create the climate crisis. At the COP last week, scientists warned that global warming is already killing thousands of people each year. So can the COP process help address these inequalities and reduce emissions? What does the latest climate science tell us about what needs to be done? Here to help us answer these questions and more, we have two expert guests today. Samudu Atapatu is a director of research centers and a teaching professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison Law School. She teaches international environmental law and climate change and human rights. She also directs the Wisconsin Initiative on Law and Climate Change. Welcome, Samudu, to A Public Affair. Thank you, Douglas. And we have with us also Dr. Jillian Gregg is a senior instructor in crop and soil science at Oregon State University and a co-author of the article, World Scientists Warning of a Climate Emergency 2022, which was published last month in the journal Bioscience. She teaches thousands of undergraduates about the climate crisis every year. Welcome, Jillian. It's great to be here. And welcome, listeners. We'd love for you to join our conversation today. If you have a question for our guests, an opinion about COP27, please give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. You can also tweet us at WORT Talk or message a public affair on Facebook. So we're going to do this dance today between science and politics and climate action, move back and forth between both. We'll start with the latest climate science. Jillian, uh, you and your colleagues just published this article, World Scientists Warning of a Climate Emergency 2022. Um, What are the key findings that led you to this warning that you want to share with us today? Well, let me tell you a little bit about the history that, you know, the original warning to humanity uh, entitled World Scientist Warning to Humanity was written back in 1992 by the Union of Concerned Scientists. So around 2017, we realized, well, it's been 25 years since then, and we don't think we've been seeing any action. So we looked at the 10 variables that the Union of Concerned Scientists was concerned about, and we found that eight of those 10 variables are just continuing unscathed, no action, whatever. Two variables that had had action were the uh, chlorofluorocarbons to reduce the ozone hole and also in fisheries, having no fish zones to try to bring bring back fish populations. But the other eight had no action. And we realized at that time, there's way more than just 10 variables. We've got dozens of variables that need to be explained. So we started 
by doing a world scientist uh, warning of a, a second emergency. That's where we looked at the 10 variables. And now we have the world scientist warning of a climate emergency where we include 35 different variables and we group them into human factors that are causing the problem and biological or global uh, changes that are happening as a result of the things that humans are doing. Now, nested within the human factors, we have not only the things that we're doing that are causing the problems, but we do have a subset of factors of actions that humans are taking to try to offset the problem. And so um, basically this world scientist warning of a climate emergency is a paper that we update every year. We don't want another 25 years to go by without people knowing what's going on. And so what came out to this this week was the recent update. And the main thing that we highlight in addition to all these variables, 16 of which are at their all time worst, uh, that they are, um, I'm hearing a little bit of an echo there, that, that um, yeah, 16 are at the all time worst. And we also highlight these, these 17 different climate change disasters that have happened just this year alone. And so we're really hitting home on a similar thing as the COP27, where it's not that we're looking 10 years into the future anymore. These disasters are happening now. Thanks, Jillian. And I appreciate uh, that history you gave us of this effort by scientists to begin to sound the call for this emergency. And as you mentioned, there was uh, another warning paper three years ago in which your co-author and Oregon State colleague Bill Ripple uh, joined with uh, 14,000 scientists from 158 countries to sign. Uh, and there's a, a really great documentary that Oregon State just published, an award-winning documentary about this work um, that uh, really builds on this work of the Alliance of World Scientists, which you are a part of as well, Jillian. The documentary is called A Scientist's Warning, and we're going to play just a short clip of that now to give us a sense of this call to action that scientists are gathering around. Welcome up, Bill Ripple again. I work as a scientist studying everything from ecology to climate change. Scientists have a moral obligation to clearly warn humanity of any great existential threat and tell it like it is. I would love to see a movement of scientists where it just becomes common that scientists are out there working in communities and out there with the, the press and out there with the political leaders and really much more engaged. And, and sometimes I feel like I just want to shake humanity and say, okay, do something. This, the, the scientific data are in. So what I'm going to ask you to say is all hands on deck. Got that? What do we need? I'll see you in the streets. Thank you. So there is Oregon State scientist Bill Ripple at uh, a climate action rally there in Corvallis, Oregon, where one of our guests today here on A Public Affair, Jillian Gregg, teaches a climate science. And Jillian, can you tell us a little bit more about the Alliance of World Scientists that this film uh, builds on? and what you and the Alliance of World Scientists are advocating in terms of climate action. Well, I think the beginning of the whole Alliance of World Scientists happened because Bill Ripple was a, quite concerned that as if he came out to be a climate advocate, then he might get backlash from the university and from his colleagues uh, because he's, he's going beyond just reporting the data and then waiting for news journalists to come out and, and spread the word. He was getting so frustrated. He's writing this, you know, the, the, the second warning paper initially, and then the climate emergency papers. And he's feeling a little like, well, what if I lose my job? What if I'm not respected for this? So he just mailed off an email to about 40 colleagues, one email, and said, you know, would you want to co-sign on this paper with me? And by the next morning, he had those people had forward to other people, to other people, and thousands of scientists had said, we support you and we, we want to, you know, to support this paper. So that's where they came up with this idea to have all these co-signatories 
on those papers. So, uh, and that, yeah, like you said, it came to over 20,000 signatories from over 150 countries, all signing these different papers. And in fact, the university promoted him to become a distinguished scientist and gave him all sorts of accolades. And so we kind of want to get the message out, whereas scientists typically are like, we need to hide behind our science and we're not, it's not appropriate for us to get out there. That in this day and age, there, there is the moral obligation as a scientist that we need to get the word out. And it's almost part of our jobs as scientists to be helping in that effort. So you're really reframing uh, a public role for, for science, uh, it sounds like, in this effort, which is um, remarkable. And as you say, there are so many barriers to scientists doing that historically. So um, it's, a, it's a powerful story that uh, this effort is telling. Um, that's one way for uh, climate action and climate advocacy to happen. Obviously, at the same time, we have scientists working on this issue, getting the message out there. We have political and international negotiations happening. And that is, of course, um, one reason why we're doing this show right now, this week, during COP27, happening in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. Um, Samudu, uh, you have been to COP before. Can you give us a sense of what this conference is like and a basic overview of the COP process? Um, the COP uh, has become bigger and bigger every year uh, with so many um, uh, different groups being represented um, in addition to the official negotiations that take place. So um, I was in Paris, uh, in Madrid, um, as well as uh, um, uh, Glasgow last year. Um, and I believe Glasgow had over 25,000 participants. Um, and this was during a pandemic, mind you. <laughs> uh, and I hear um, this year's COP is um, over 45,000 people. Um, so I, you can imagine that it gets a little chaotic <laughs> with uh, such large numbers. But it also provides the forum for all these different groups to get together uh, and influence the negotiation. So they may not take play, uh, they, they may not be able to participate in the official negotiations, but you know, you can talk to them in the corridors. There's so much happening um, outside the negotiations in terms of side events, there are lots of pavilions. So there are NGOs, indigenous peoples, youth, uh, women's groups, academics, uh, in addition to the businesses, increasingly um, uh, fossil fuel companies are coming to these uh, COP meetings as well. Um, so it has kind of a, a chaotic circus-like atmosphere, but it is also very invigorating to see how many people are actually vested in this. And then, of course, outside the venue, you see people uh, protesting as well. Uh, so I saw a video of people protesting when uh, President Biden was speaking, for example. So there's a lot going on, in other words. You're listening to A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm talking today with Samudu Atapatu from the UW-Madison Law School and Jillian Gregg from Oregon State University. We're talking about COP27, the UN climate talks, and the latest climate science. We'd love to have you join the conversation at 608-256-2001, extension 9. Give us a call. We're going to continue now with COP and thinking a little bit about uh, the role of COP in climate action. Uh, Samudu, could you tell us, from your point of view, what COP has accomplished in the past 27 years, what the importance of it is? Um, it has accomplished a lot on the one hand, in terms of the legal framework, getting states to even cut down 5% of greenhouse gas emissions, I think is a big achievement, but we have gone beyond that. But as Jillian just pointed out, we are nowhere near where we should be. Um, so, um, 
you know, we have at the beginning got the industrialized countries to cut down their emissions. And then as we got went along, uh, we realized that, you know, emerging economies like China and India and Brazil were contributing a lot. So we needed to get all of them on board. And one of the um, sort of the drawbacks for this was the legal principle we came up with. Um, we, I mean, the international community uh, called the common but differentiated responsibility principle, which means that those who contributed more, in this case, industrialized countries, um, should cut their emissions first. And developing countries did not really want to give up this principle. And that was one of the reasons why at Paris, the international community went for voluntary contributions rather than this top-down approach that the Kyoto Protocol adopted. So that has its own drawbacks. As, as you can imagine, we cannot hold any, anybody's feet to the fire because these are voluntary commitments. But on the other hand, uh, a lot of people argue that because they are voluntary, they are likely to be met rather than a top-down process where, you know, um, nobody will actually fulfill their obligations. So, the report card is mixed, I'm afraid, but um, at least there's a commitment on the part of major emitters uh, to reduce their emissions. We have a long way to go, but we have the legal framework in place. As you said, Samudu, you were there in Paris for the Paris Climate Accord. Can you describe to us what that felt like and what your sense was at the time of whether it was a major achievement? Oh, absolutely. Uh, there was so much optimism in the room. Um, I wasn't there when it was uh, uh, actually adopted, but I was there the first week. Um, uh, as I said, everybody was anticipating this big moment when you know a legal framework would be adopted going forward because um, we, at that point, uh, if Paris had failed, I don't know what would have happened. Um, so that, that was very invigorating, but um, I was at Madrid a few years later, and then, you know, I think the reality had set in <laughs> that we were not doing enough. Um, so unfortunately, the mood was not so upbeat. Um, and also that was the time when the venue was changed from Chile to Madrid as well. So a lot of NGOs were not able to actually participate. Um, so, yeah. Jillian, here we are, seven years out uh, from the Paris Accord. Um, what's your take on the progress that has been made towards that 1.5 goal? And is it realistic at this point? No, many scientists believe we're, we're already have emitted enough to reach two degrees Celsius. Uh, so an actual being able to stay below two degrees is is very remote, uh, but if we all got on board right away, there's some possibility. For example, I have a few numbers for you. So we, you know, so CO2 started at 380 parts per million pre-industrial. In 2016, when I started teaching the Intro to Climate Change class, I was all hyped up, like we're passing 400 parts per million now, 400 parts per million, you guys. But so CO2 is going up two and a half parts per million every year. So now we're already at 416, 416 parts per million. And we only need, once as soon as we get to 463 parts per million, um, that's the threshold of CO2. It's a one-to-one -one relation. How, many, how much CO2 or CO2 equivalents in greenhouse gases, you know, however much we have, then that's the exact temperature that we're going to be at. So the calculation is that when we get to 463 parts per million CO2, that's when we're going to reach the two degrees threshold. And so right now with business as usual, we're expected to reach that in uh, by 2042, which is only 20 years from now. So yeah, there's, there's, there's little chance, but we still need to act to reduce our emissions. And, and once we reduce our emissions, then we need to, um, then we actually have to get into negative emissions so that we need to bring our CO2 concentrations 
back to 350 parts per million, which is where scientists have determined that's when we could have a safe and stable climate system. Just to underline those numbers a little bit to give folks a sense of what that kind of world looks like at two degrees, um, mm-hmm. what does the science tell us about the impacts of two degrees Celsius of warming? And remember, that's a global average, of course, um, yeah. for temperature. Yeah, well, so it's, so a new paper just came out in September in, in science where they evaluated the various tipping points. And they've, they've upped the number of tipping points that they're talking, to, talking about, about 16 different pos- possible tipping points. So the idea is that many, like, there's the changes that we're making that are, we add CO2 and other greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, and then that causes um, various different climate catastrophes. But, that, but, but one thing that happens as we add, as the globe gets warmer, is that we pass thresholds that have, that, that there's positive feedback loops. And the most obvious positive feedback loop is the melting of the uh, Arctic ice. And so melting of that ice makes the globe not as reflective. And so more of the incoming solar radiation gets absorbed by the climate system. And that also helps to warm the climate. So there's a threshold beyond which we don't even have to add greenhouse gases anymore. But but the, just the changing of the color of the surface of the earth will itself absorb more heat from the incoming solar radiation and be on this positive feedback loop. And there's many such different positive feedback loops. We have a paper coming up on that in January. But as we emit greenhouse gases and enter these feedback loops, then we're also expected to pass tipping points that we can no longer do anything about. And the paper that just came out in September in Science Magazine by McKay et al. uh, indicates that six of these different tipping points are expected to happen before we even reach two degrees Celsius. And those are the melting of the Greenland ice sheet. If we, as the whole of Greenland ice melts, then that would raise sea level by approximately 20 feet. And if we, as we um, melt the whole West Antarctic ice sheet, or if, if actually if all of the ice on, in Antarctica were to melt, which is not expected, we're just expected the West Antarctic sheet is the early tipping point, um, that would raise sea level even more. We also have the tipping point of the low latitude coral reefs and that we are killing off all of our coral reefs and that the boreal permafrost is melting and that adds into a a feedback loop. So if those frozen soils in the boreal regions of the earth, as they begin to thaw, they release CO2 and methane into the atmosphere that's separate from what we ourselves are emitting. And so that adds into a feedback that is going to be consequential. So every, it's, the time is now. It's, it's not really even, we were really excited that the IPCC came out with their 2018 point, 2018 paper uh, on what will happen at 1.5 degrees Celsius and that we have until 2030 to do something. But as we hear from the countries that are coming, you know, Bangladesh and Pakistan that have been at the COP27 talking about thousands of people dying from floods and roads and bridges that are lost and farms that are submerged, 2 million of homes that are gone, 30, greater than 30 billion in damages, and that they need compensated now. They didn't, they didn't do these emissions. <laughs> these industrial na- nations have emitted all these fossil fuels, and that is what is magnifying the catastrophes that are damaging their countries and they're not saying, well, we need to wait until these things happen. They're saying they're happening now. These are the negotiations. We're here. We need compensated for the damages that have already happened. We're talking about the latest climate science and COP27 here on A Public Affair on WORT 89.9 FM Madison. I'm talking with Jillian Gregg from Oregon State University and Samudu Atapatu from the UW-Madison Law School. Please join us. 
Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9, with questions about the climate crisis in COP27. You could also tweet us at WRT Talk or Message of Public Affair on Facebook. So let's pick up right where we left off there. Uh, hold up, hold that thought. We have a caller, just as I was speaking. So we're going to go to our caller first to get more folks into the conversation. Go ahead, Pete. You're on a public affair. Yes. Uh, as a quick matter of introduction, I'm a 50-year career agricultural journalist. And in the agricultural sector, we've been treated uh, to the, the, my opinion, absurdity of carbon credit trading. With, such as with manure digesters uh, for large dairy farms. So my question, so last week I saw a report in the newspapers that John Kerry uh, has said that the default position for the U.S. and the climate talks would fall back to uh, carbon, proposing carbon credit trading because nothing else was seemed to be politically feasible given our political impasse in D.C. So my question to your your call your your guests is am i absur- is it is it absurd to view carbon credits as a solution to uh global warming simply because these things remind me of the indulgences or sin insurance offered by the Catholic Church in the middle ages thank you for that question pete so pete's drawing our attention to one proposed form of climate action carbon credits um, that John Kerry is reportedly saying the U.S. is going to have to um, advance more rapidly given the political realities in the United States, at least here in the United States, as a form of climate action. Um, Jillian or Samudu, would one of you like to speak to carbon credits and your take on the efficacy of carbon credits? Uh, I would say that they are one of many actions that need taken, that there's no one silver bullet. We need to we need to take action in every different area. And certainly that will help tremendously with agriculture. And so I think it's a great thing. As far as, I'm, I'm not sure uh, when you were talking about John Kerry thinking that that's the only thing that we could do. Uh, I know that uh, Biden, when he was at the COP27 uh, just last Friday, he was talking about all the things that are coming through with uh, U.S. policy with the Inflation Reduction Act and, you know, basically upgrading the nation's infrastructure, making the power grid better, expanding public transit and rail, building a nationwide network of electric vehicle charges. There are apparently going to be over 50,000 of those. And then really putting money into clean energy. Uh, uh, Samudu, did you, were you chiming in? No, go ahead. I'll add when you're done. Oh, I was kind of going on and on. But anyway, they feel that the um, the Inflation Reduction Act, and this is probably more Samudu's area, so I'm interested to hear what she has to say about that. No, I mean, to add to what you said, uh, it's everything is on the table, should be on the table, not just um, carbon trading. I know this has been a little controversial globally, and because we were not part of the Kyoto Protocol, uh, we did not participate in the carbon trading market that was created under the um, uh, the Kyoto Protocol. Um, so it, it is one of the many things that should happen, including reducing our emissions. I think that is the key. Uh, when I say our emissions, I mean everybody's emissions because it's a global problem, but as the highest contributor to the problem historically, I think U.S. has a major role to play in actually being the leader, and there have been calls um, for the U.S. Um, to be the leader in relation to climate change. Um, and weaning ourselves away from fossil fuels, I think, is the key. And again, this has become a huge um, political issue as well, and we know, uh, you know some uh, the legislation here uh, almost didn't make it through because of the fossil fuel lobby. Um, so, as I said, it's all hands on deck. Um, every action should be on the table and at every level possible. Thank you. That's Samudu Apataru um, 
from the UW-Madison Law School. We're talking about the climate crisis and COP27 on a public affair. Give us a call at 608-256-2001, extension 9. I definitely want to return to that issue of inequality and how it's being addressed or not addressed at COP27. Before we do that, we're going to go to another caller. Randy, you're on a public affair. Yes, good afternoon. Um, I was, uh, I think one of the great tragedies of this whole situation was that uh, for an entire four-year administration, uh, Trump's, uh, this country did absolutely nothing about uh, the situation. It it denied it. And I'm uh, worried that if uh, Trump or DeSantis, uh, which I think are pretty much the only choices uh, Republican candidates uh, when two years from now, do we? Ha- uh, I can predict that within a, a day or two, we will pull out of the Paris Accord again. And I'm wondering if, uh, to uh, either of your knowledge, uh, if uh, we have any protections in place so things don't just come to a complete halt. So Randy's asking, uh, what would happen in terms of the U.S and climate mitigation and carbon reduction uh, if a Republican president were elected in 2024. Uh, Samudu, would you like to start there? Um, I'll take a first shot at it. Uh, Of course, it's a very political issue and, um, you know, it all depends on how we vote, right? So I think the first thing to think about is getting more people to vote on climate issues. Um, and they, as we saw in the midterm election, the younger generation is very concerned about this issue. So we need more people to vote on climate change, make that the platform. I think that's really important. Um, in terms of pulling out of the Paris Accord, um, so the Paris Accord actually says that uh, you have to give notice of withdrawal and it takes effect uh, after three years. Um, so hopefully, you know, um, by then there might be another change. Um, and there's a lot going on at the uh, state level too, which we should not forget. And um, as I said earlier, we need um, action at every level um, so we can increase uh, what's happening at the state level. And that's what happened uh, during the uh, Trump era, um, the last Trump era. Uh, you know, California is taking the lead. Uh, Wisconsin itself has a task force. The governor appointed a task force. That report is available. So, uh, and at the local level, uh, the mayor's initiative, uh, you know, so there's a lot going on that we can expand on, but I agree we need much more robust action at the federal level as well. Jillian, would you like to chime in on that as well? She pretty much hit every point that I would have made. I was encouraged, you know, so as I said, 2016 is when I started teaching my class on climate change. And so there were people in my lecture, students that came to lecture and they were just in tears. They just didn't know what was gonna happen for four years. And I was encouraged by the level of, you know, the whole Alliance of World Scientists came together during that time and state action came together during that time. And it really incited a lot of action. I think from scientists, like everyone from every walk felt like, well, well, okay, so we actually have to do something. It's not that we can sit around and wait for something to do. And we were, you know, only philosophically saved by the fact that we were never actually out of the Paris Agreement until uh, in, until election day, actually, of um, of in November. So we were actually only out of the Paris Agreement for a couple of months. But still, no action had taken. We were effectively out because we were not taking any action. So it was it was a, a major blow for sure. 
I'm glad uh, both of you brought up the issue of generational change as well and young people voting. There's been a lot of reporting over the past week since the election about the impact of uh, the youth vote in this last midterm election. And I had a couple, a few students on uh, from Wisconsin just last week actually talking about climate change as an issue really important to them. And that was echoed in a Washington Post uh, exit poll that was uh, published this morning, actually, where climate change was cited among all voters right up there with abortion as the second most important issue to them. So the politics uh, around this are changing. Whether that's translating internationally, again, is a question we'll keep coming back to this hour. I think this is a great point for us to go back to COP and talk a little bit about these terms, loss and damage, that keep coming up as contentious issues at COP. Samudu, can you explain to us uh, what the terms loss and damage mean in the context of international climate negotiations and how the debate over loss and damage is playing out at COP? Sure. Um, so um, I, I would take a step back and talk a little bit about how loss and damage came about. Um, actually, um, in, during the early uh, period of negotiations in the 1990s, um, small island states had been asking for this mechanism to be recognized uh, as part of the legal framework because more than anybody else, and this relates to the justice issue and the disproportionate impact on certain communities that you talked about earlier, um, so more than any other group of states, the small island states are going to be affected to the extent that they might all disappear uh, because of sea level rise and um, these extreme weather events that they are experiencing. Uh, and that raises a lot of legal issues like, you know, what's happening to these um, sovereign nations? Are they going to be still considered as states? And more importantly, the humanitarian question, what's going to happen to these people? Uh, where are they going to go? Um, but as you can imagine, this was a very controversial, very contentious issue. Um, so, uh, but uh, small island states kept on pushing. Um, they have an alliance uh, that negotiate as a block um, at COP uh, meetings. And finally, before the Paris Agreement, I think it was in Warsaw, um, that they were able to um, adopt um, the Warsaw mechanism on loss and damage. So uh, this recognizes that some um, damages uh, or some losses are irreparable, no matter what you do, uh, like loss of culture when it comes to indigenous communities. Some of them, even in the US, uh, have to relocate uh, because of climate change. Um, and damages are basically what can be um, what what can be uh, repaired or restored. Um, so that falls within um, adaptation measures like building sea walls. But we don't know whether these are going to be temporary. Um, so basically, losses, you know, irreparable damage, um, and damage is. Uh, you know, loss that can be repaired to some extent. And um, in the Paris Agreement, uh, the small island states were able to actually include this as uh, the fourth pillar of climate action, which was great. Um, and for the first time after the Paris Agreement, um, states were able to include loss and damage in the um, uh, official agenda, negotiating agenda for the first time. So uh, what's happening then at this COP in terms of loss and damage? There seems to be some debate about uh, how much money rich nations are going to be providing for losses and damages and whether or not the money that has already been pledged is, is coming through. What's your sense of, of that right now, Samudu? Um, so in Copenhagen, um, states pledged $100 billion per year, which of course has not come, uh, unfortunately. Um, and in terms of actual losses, the number is around $1.4 trillion. 
um and you know some of these are non-monetary damages how do you put a price tag on loss of land you know your burial grounds and you know um loss of culture um so um there is some resistance on the part of you know the main emitters um they want they don't want a separate fund for loss and damage they want this as part of um the adaptation uh, fund that is already in existence. Um, so I don't know what will happen in the end, but there is a lot of push to have a separate fund for loss and damage. Um, in fact, at Glasgow uh, last year, Scotland was the first state to pledge some funds for the loss and damage mechanism, a separate fund. But uh, I hear the US is not very keen on having a separate fund. You're listening to A Public Affair. We're talking about the climate crisis, the latest climate science, and COP27 happening right now in Egypt with Jillian Gregg from Oregon State University and Sumudu Atapatu from the UW-Madison Law School. I'd love to continue talking about the ethical dimensions of the issue of what rich nations who develop with fossil fuels owe to poor countries who are disproportionately bearing the weight of climate change. Just this morning, uh, climate activist and author Bill McKibben called loss and damage the great ethical question of our time and place in the way that slavery perhaps seemed in the 19th century. Uh, I'd love to have both of you think out loud a little bit about how we communicate the ethical nature of the climate crisis to people in the global north who may not understand it this way, and what you both see as the human rights dimensions of this issue. Uh, We'll turn it back to you first, Jillian, and and then to Samudu. Well, my students get it pretty easily. (laughs) I think the, and I think it's not a hard concept to understand, The question is, when money comes into the picture, how much are people going to pay for things? And I do not have a handle on the economics of how that will possibly happen. I am impressed with the fact that the Paris Agreement already does have something they call the Green Climate Fund. And so each nation, in addition to pledging the how much they're going to be reducing their greenhouse gas emissions. They also are supposed to declare an amount that they will be contributing to the Green Climate Fund. And that fund is to go to uh, developing nations to be able to leapfrog instead of putting up power plants to go directly to perhaps solar or wind so that they can get their their electricity electricity in the same way that they were able to leapfrog and not have telephone poles all everywhere. They just went from no phones to cell phones. Uh, Potentially that's a possibility with contributions from this Green Climate Fund. So it sounds like the issue has not been so strongly put in the past. And so I would imagine if I were delegate at the COP27, we would say we need to have an additional loss and damage fund and countries should all Uh, figure out how much they will be contributing to the loss and damage fund as well. Thank you, Samudu. I would like to take a step back um, and um, mention the fact that billions of people worldwide um, do not have access to basic needs. Uh, They are are living in appalling conditions. They don't have access to running water or electricity, which means that they do need to develop. Um, But the carbon budget that's available to them has been diminished. And uh, Gillian spoke about this. Um, So we are telling them to develop in a different manner. But many of them still look up to the developed countries uh, as a model to aspire to, which is totally unsustainable. Um, So as Gillian pointed out, we need to provide them with the technology um, to uh, develop in um, a much more sustainable, carbon-friendly manner provide them with the funds, at the same time uh, helping them to adapt to the consequences of climate change. Um, 
and then see how developed countries can actually reduce the consumption because our consumption is totally unsustainable as well. Uh, a person in a developing developed country consumes 80% more resources than a person in a developing country. So that's something as individuals we can do. And then look at the whole issue of divestment uh, because you know the fossil fuel companies are still profiting from emitting and from selling their commodities. And um, we really need to uh, stop doing that, uh, stop making them richer, which also means that you know climate change is getting worse. So looking at how we can help these developing countries, and especially small island states at the same time, reducing our own carbon footprint uh, in the developed world, and then looking at this whole issue of climate refugees, which I'm very passionate about. I'd like to follow up about climate refugees, Sumudu. I'm going to, I think we have time for one question tapping into each of your expertise before we have to wrap up today. So we'll follow up first about climate refugees. Can you talk about the legal landscape for climate refugees right now? Uh, what, if any, kinds of protections do they have and what's happening to create protections for them? Um, so uh, they... Um the short answer is there's no legal framework for people who uh, cross international borders due to climate change because the refugee framework is based on persecution and the refugee framework is very specific on what grounds that persecution should be. Um, most uh, displacement related to climate change will be within borders, uh, but that does not mean that uh, human rights of these people who are forced to uh, flee their homes due to climate change uh, is not implicated, right? Uh, they, are, they might lose everything they have, um, even if they move within their borders. Um, and then that puts a burden on the state to protect these people. Um, and uh, we really need to look at that aspect. Um, and even in the U.S., there are communities that are being forced to relocate because of climate change, communities in Alaska, community in uh, Louisiana, that's already been relocated. And these are indigenous communities. Um, so I spoke about the culture. Um, and... The legal framework is still trying to come up with something uh, to protect um, the, the people who are forced to flee across borders. And there are some signs under the human rights framework um, that uh, that's possible. Uh, the human rights committee recognized that people should not be forced to uh, go back to their home countries if climate change poses a serious risk to their life. Uh, so some um, developments are taking place, but not um, fast enough, unfortunately. Is that something that can happen in the context of COP? And what do you hope to see from this particular COP27 outcome? So it is uh, connected to loss and damage. Uh, so under the Paris uh, decisions, uh, a task force was established for the first time to look into uh, climate migration. Um, they did not actually propose a legal framework. Um, there has been some uh, non-binding initiatives that have come about, uh, but um pretty sure the loss and damage mechanism will, um, will address the climate refugee aspect as well. And do you have other particular uh, outcomes that you hope for from COP27, Samudu? Yeah, uh, I mean, I know there has been um, some pushback on... Um, on human rights, the link with climate change. Uh, as we know, uh, for the first time, the Paris Agreement included a reference to human rights, uh, but that has been um, a little uh, contentious as well. 
but uh, the General Assembly, the UN General Assembly, recognized for the first time uh, this July that right to a healthy environment is a human right. So I, I don't think we can go back and say, you know, climate change is not a human rights issue. We are way beyond that. Um, and there are lots of um, cases that are coming, uh, litigation that are taking place within the human rights framework um, in relation to climate change. Uh, recently, Australia was held accountable for not taking enough action uh, for um, Torres Islanders um, and was asked to pay reparations. So, um, yeah, I hope. COP27 will be successful in terms of the pledges uh, and the commitments uh, that need to increase uh, as well as loss and damage. Some mechanism will be established to address that. Thank you. That was Samudu Atapatu from UW-Madison's Law School, where she teaches international environmental law and climate change and human rights and directs the Wisconsin Initiative on Law and Climate Change. We've also had with us today uh, Jillian Gregg, a senior instructor in crop and soil science at Oregon State University and co-author of the article World Scientists Warning of a Climate Emergency 2022, published last month in the journal Bioscience. Thank you so much for joining us today, Samudu. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to Jillian. Thank you, listeners, for joining us here on A Public Affair, WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'd like to thank today's engineer, Andrew, producer Jade, and news director, Sholly, for your help as well. And thank you, listeners, for joining us. Uh, Jillian, thanks. Thank you very much. Sorry, my internet went out. That's okay. We lost Jillian there for a moment, but uh, at least we got got you back in there at the end for your last-minute voice. Uh, stay tuned for Madison Bookbeat. On today's show, David Ahrens talks with Ruth Conniff about her book, Milk. We'll see you next time on A Public Affair. The Bible while you walking off with all the gold. The bureaucratic office sends you merry go rounding. By the KKK police the streets by bloodhounding. Interest on the credit card just keeps on compounding. But the FCC can never shut this pirate sound down. I indirect become a never pre-recorded. With information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct become a never pre-recorded. With information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media they are distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With an admission that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media are distorted. We come and listen and supported. Live and direct, we come and never pre-recorded. With information that would never be reported. Disregard the mainstream, media distorted. We come and listen and supported.